Welcome back to The Human Exception. This week, I'll be taking you through history to explore the origins and transformation of alchemy, the mysterious half-science, half-spiritual practice that has been around almost as long as humans have. As always, expect some foul language, but let's get ready for another Human Exception. I might be able to add some context or yes, add context of the era or whatever. Okay, we're going to go everywhere. We're going to go <laughs> throughout human history because alchemy is fucking whack, y'all. <laughs> That's one of my favorite subjects. <laughs> so yeah, when Holly said that she was going to do the Void of Magic script, obviously the next thing I thought of was alchemy. So why not? It's a good pair. <laughs> So, yeah, obviously you guys have probably heard of alchemy in one context or another, most likely in fantasy stories or video games, but you likely haven't heard about the actual historical practice aside from the quest for immortality and transmuting lesser metals into gold. Alchemy is an ancient practice, one with obscure tangled roots that may go back a couple millennia BC. Much of alchemy's history is shrouded in mystery and ciphers and is a practice that has repeatedly been banned throughout history and has faced many hurdles, yet still managed to find its way even today. The general goal of alchemy was to purify, mature, and perfect certain materials. So yeah, turn lead to gold, become immortal, creating remedies that could cure whatever ails you. Not only could alchemy make you rich and healthy, it could also lead you to the perfection of the human body and soul. So does this not sound like every self-help MLM you've ever heard of? I was just thinking. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's what Young Living's trying to do, fuckers. <laughs> the word alchemy has a very worldly history. The modern term coming from the old French alchemy, which is then the medieval Latin, which was alchemia. The Latin word was then adopted from the Arabic word, which was alchemia, which in turn was borrowed from the late Greek team, Great, uh, late Greek term, kumia, all these factors combined break down to roughly basically the word means the process of transmutation by which to fuse or reunite with the divine or original form. Original That's... Greek words origins is, is a little more ambiguous. Some are argue that it's the name of the book, called, that was the name of a book that was called the Kemu, while others argue it was derived from the Greek word that was used to describe metallic objects formed by casting. Some even argue that the word is a derivative of an Egyptian word, keme, which means black earth in reference to the fertile soil of the Nile as opposed to the barren red desert sand. Egyptologist Wallace, Wallace Budge argues that the Arabic word alchemia actually means the Egyptian science or the Egyptian black arts. So, believe what you will, what we know is the world word is old as fuck. <laughs> It's not uncommon for scholars to split alchemy into practical applications and the more esoteric spiritual aspects. Both of these are integral to understanding what alchemy really was. So as a whole, alchemy encompasses several philosophical traditions spanning over four millennia and three continents because of the cryptic and symbolic language used in alchemic texts, it makes it really difficult to trace back its origins. It's generally agreed that there are at least three major strands, which appear to be mostly independent at least in the early years so we have the chinese alchemy indian alchemy and western alchemy which started in the mediterranean shifted to the islamic world and then medieval europe 
Chinese alchemy had a lot of connections with Taoism and Indian with the Dharmic faiths, while Western alchemy was mostly developed independent of various Western religions, but was absolutely influenced as it passed from one culture to the next. Despite these three, these three strands, it's still an open question as to whether or not all three had a common origin at some point, or how much they influenced each other, as the practice has always been heavily guarded. Most of what we're going to cover today will be about Western alchemy, as that's kind of what we had the most information on. But I wanted to kind of give a brief rundown of Chinese and Indian alchemy, because I thought it was interesting. So, India, the more general name for the Indian science of alchemy or protochemistry was Rizastra. I'm also going to butcher these words, just so you know. Um, <laughs> but maybe referred to as Rasayana as well though the latter is more specific to medical practices, lengthening lifespans and invigorating the body. Alchemy in India was focused more on the creation of a divine body and immortality, but many early Sanskrit alchemical texts talk about material manipulation of substances like mercury and sulfur. India's alchemical history can be traced back to the metallurgic roots in the second millennium BC, texts known as the Vedas. Vedas are some of the oldest Sanskrit literature and the oldest Hinduism scriptures discovered to date. The text describes a connection between eternal life and gold. In the 3rd century AD, we see that India had a considerable knowledge of metallurgy as well as other chemistry-related pursuits, including recipes for explosives and directions for extracting salts from fertile soils and plant remains for the purpose of making saltpeter, perfume, and refined sugar. So those are just three strange things that are made from the same process. Saltpeter, perfume, and sugar. Boom, sweet, smell good. <laughs> Boom, sweet, smell good. Yes. So Buddhist texts from the 2nd to 5th century mention the transmutation of base metals to gold. There is some argument that the Greek alchemists may have had a big influence on India alchemists, but there is no evidence to support this claim. It was not uncommon for historical Buddhist philosophers to dabble or practice in alchemy, especially when in association with medicine. One of the well-known alchemists was Nagarjuna Sita, was a Buddhist monk who was said to have developed a method for converting mercury into gold. Some of the early alchemical writings appear to originate in the Kala Tantric schools, which is primarily focused on the worship of Shiva and Shakti. Others can be found in medical texts written in southern India in the early 9th century. Some of, the, some of these alchemic texts in Sanskrit have been studied and widely across the world. There are so many that have never been translated. As unlike Western alchemy with you know, the pagan religious roots, Buddhism and Hinduism were never fully squashed. Many of their original works still survive today and likely could probably tell us a lot about the history of alchemy as a whole. So China... Um, the exact origins of alchemy in China are still debated to this day. Some argue that it may be as old as 2000 BC, but solid evidence is limited. What we do know is the practice of alchemy was tied very closely to Taoism, and through this it is thought that the creators of the practice were Laozi and Zhang Daoling. So Laozi is a semi-legendary Taoist philosopher thought to have lived between 600 to 400 BC, and the alleged accomplishments of this guy were serving as the royal archivist of the Zhao court, not only met Confucius, but impressed him in some way. It's not clear how. <laughs> um, composed the Tao Te Ching, which is a fundamental text for Taoism that would go on to strongly influence much of Chinese philosophy and religion, and founded Taoism. You know, just like that big deal. Yeah, no big deal, whatever. <laughs> quite, the re quite the resume. <laughs> so the story goes that after many great achievements, he retired and went west into the wilderness, never to be seen again. Folklore tells us that he became an immortal hermit or a god of the celestial bureaucracy under the name Lao Zhen, 
one of the three pure ones. So since the 7th century, Laozi was considered a revered ancestor, though in more recent years some scholars have begun to argue that Laozi may have never existed at all. Meanwhile, we go to Zhang Daling, who is also credited with founding Taoism and is thought to have lived in the 1st or 2nd century AD. It's said that he began reading the Tao Te Ching since an early age and would later encounter Lao Zhong, the deified Laozi, who would tell him that bad times were coming and that he needed to lead the chosen people. Okay, Moses. Yeah, right. <laughs> but he would found he would found a health cult where he would spread his Taoist teachings that were said to promote long life. It is alleged that Dowling lived into his hundred and twenties when he passed away. He simply disappeared, leaving nothing but his clothes behind as he had ascended. It's not a bad I, way to go. <laughs> I was just thinking that. I was like, Yeah, you just poof and your clothes are left. And I'm like, What happened? No mess. I'm down <laughs> for no mess. Yeah, he, yeah, he just left. He's gone. It's all good. <laughs> I mean, why would you not just leave? <laughs> I know. Like, just a good old Irish goodbye. Yeah. Instead of uh, a big old fucking mess and a and a trouble, just just an Irish yeah. goodbye. No, yeah, not tr- not not bothering anybody, not forcing anybody to. No, just gone. Amazing. Yep. <laughs> So, it's easy to see how these stories could be linked to alchemy with legends of ascendance and longevity. According to one researcher, it is thought that Dowling had met and the ascended Laozi. Together, they created the Philosopher's Stone. But there's little evidence to directly support this. Their first solid alchemical connection comes from the Qin Dynasty when writer Huang Quan, which lived between 73 and 49 BC, states how modifying forms of nature and ingesting them will bring immortality to the person who drinks them. C. Cooper claims that there's an even older connection when he claims that in 144 BC, during that year, the emperor issued a decree which ordered public execution for anyone found making counterfeit gold. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Cooper also just suggests that there's evidence in 60 BC that the emperor hired a well-known scholar, Li Zhang, as master of the recipes so that he could make alchemical gold and prolong the emperor's life. But Cooper seems to be the only source on this. As you imagine, the history of Chinese alchemy is all over the place, but it does sound like the practice did begin early on, or at least practices similar to what we would call alchemy. So here's what we do know about Chinese alchemy. Much of China, natural gold is really rare, and much of it had to be imported, but despite its rarity, alchemy-created gold is considered superior to natural gold, as it's believed that the transformative process and the combination of different materials gave it an additional spiritual value, so much so that it was thought consumption of this artificial gold could leave, lead to immortality. Consumption how? <laughs> okay. Put all this extra uh, work into it so it's better. <laughs> cause, yeah, but to get gold back into liquid to consume it, it's got to be pretty hot. You um, liquid. You could have like a you know, gold schlager. Yeah, um, you could like <laughs> you could hammer it out real thin, so then it just coats your hot dogs or whatever. You could wrap a pill in it. They were really into those those like round Chinese just, medicinal pills. You see, yeah. I just have questions because if they're like, "Hey, this gold will grant you immortality," and they're like, "Oh, Jerry died. What's up? No, he's immortal. No, but he's dead now. No, he's immortal. He drank liquid no. gold. No, he's a <laughs> god now." So I. I uh, I enjoy me a good uh, Chinese historical drama, and like there's like a running 
theme of these immortality pills or these pills that you can take that will save you from death. And, like, they're a huge thing. And, like, the hero always has one. Go figure, right? Yeah. Oh, okay. And it's one of my favorite tropes. Um, <laughs> it's like, oh, no, he's dying. Oh, I happen to have this this pill that can save anyone. Convenient. Much described that Chinese like, alchemy. <laughs> it's like the sensu bean in Dragon Ball Z. You just eat They're a sensu bean. And... Yep. Plot armor out the wazoo. <laughs> Gotta love it. All right, so cinnabar was another highly valued material used with alchemy. Cinnabar has a natural red color, which in Chinese culture represents sun, fire, royalty, and energy. Cinnabar can be roasted to extract mercury, which we all know is the old world cure-all that everyone once loved. Because hmm. of these two qualities, the color and difficulty in processing, it too was considered another excellent source of immortality. As expected, Chinese medicine and alchemy have a natural intersection. Metals were often mixed with herbs or animal byproducts, like rhino horn in particular was valued as medicines, and elixirs made with it were thought to be excellent boosts to fertility. Silver and gold were frequently used to make elixirs, but arsenic and sulfur were used as well, which ended wonderfully. <laughs> it gets better. Yeah. It seems clear that they understood that these substances were lethal, but the risk of death wasn't a concern, especially not if it meant you were going to have an excellent afterlife. As expected, many elixir drinkers died or suffered psychological issues and other ailments. No. But if you did die from one of these elixirs, the condition of your corpse would tell those who remained what level of immortality that you achieved. Oh no! Okay. So if your corpse smells sweet, you achieved immortality in an ephemeral state. <laughs> Are you at some arsenic? Or if your corpse just disappears, leaving your clothes behind, this is another form of immortality known as Shi Chang Han. I'm probably saying that wrong, um, which basically means corpse free immortal. <laughs> oh! Um, yeah. So you're that, like that, a force that's ghost. The name of a I'm book. Sorry. That's the name of a band corpse right there. Free, corpse free immortal. immortal. And yeah. all I could think was free range chicken. Like, uh, that's as far <laughs> as I got. <laughs> You're just going to be like a little blue ghost falling around your <laughs> your apprentice for the rest of your life. That's just oh, how it no. works. I want a t-shirt that says corpse free immortal. <laughs> that's pretty good. I don't know. I hope that's not offensive, but I want one so bad. Oh my gosh. With like a little so sheet ghost. <laughs> uh, so long life was one of the most common alchemical goals in China. That and spiritual mental growth. Western alchemy, one of the challenges alchemists that specialized in chemical medicine is that it was opposed very strongly by those who swore by herbal remedies. This wasn't an issue in China where mineral rem remedies have always been accepted. So they had both, whereas like you tried to bring in like chemical medicines, they're like, what the fuck, man? Eat a dandelion instead. It's that was natural. the better option. It's all natural. <laughs> so Western alchemists were also divided between those that favored transmutation and those that favored medicine. But in China, medicine was always the favored specialty. The differences between an elixir and a medicine was that a medicine tended to be composed of natural products like plants and animal byproducts, never the animals themselves, but things like fur or dung, which elixirs usually consisted of a chemical or metal mixed with, um, mixed with other items. Medicines naturally were more common because they were easier to make, but both were considered valid forms of treatments, and elixirs were just basically considered more potent. So, while not called anything like the Philosopher's Stone, Chinese alchemists had the grand elixir of immortality, and it was just as th sought after. So, 
During the Qin Dynasty, it's said that Qin Shi Huang sent Taoist alchemist Zufu to the Eastern Seas with 500 young men and 500 young women to find the elixir in the legendary Panglai Mountain, but returned without finding it. Zufu would then attempt this expedition again, this time bringing 3,000 men and 3,000 women, but they never returned. Some legends say they found Japan. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Yes. Oh, amazing. It's said that the discovery of black powder, also known as gunpowder, was made by alchemists trying to make a potion for eternal life. That. God dang that's... it, now it's, it just blows people up. That's the yeah. yeah. way <laughs> It just sends them into bodiless immortality. <laughs> Corpse free immortal. Oh my god, that's the best thing I've ever heard. <laughs> Um, so it was not uncommon for women to become alchemists. Uh, the earliest female alchemists were aware of came from the Fang family around 1st century BC. She studied the practice alongside the emperor's wife at the time. She is credited with the discovery of turning mercury into silver, which isn't quite as bullshit as it sounds. Hmm. It's believed that she discovered this technique of using mercury to extract silver from ore. The mercury, mercury could then be boiled down and would leave behind the residue of pure silver, which is cool. I didn't know that. <laughs> Hang Sang was another female alchemist which lived somewhere around 975 AD. Not only was she an alchemist, but she was also, but was also well-versed in Taoist techniques, including the ability to control spirits. Like Lady Fang, she too could turn mercury into silver, but also apparently could turn snow into silver, which is something I have no explanation for. No, that's okay. bullshit. <laughs> Western alchemy now. So alchemy's history is a complex one and it became a bit of a catch-all for many practices from medicine to chemistry to melody and spiritualism so the possible studying points are many throughout history while little evidence remains from the pre-ad practice it's commonly believed that all three strands of alchemy have a history in the bc era so the earliest suggestions we have for the origins of western alchemy would be ancient egypt some greek alchemists say as early as 3000 bc but it may even go back further than that as it's commonly thought that alchemy was a derivative of egyptian metallurgy which is the practice and art of working metal on a chemical and physical level Records indicate that Egyptians may have been studying metallurgy as early as 3500 BC. Huh. 19, yeah, <laughs> I was like, damn, <laughs> they, they, were, they were busy. <laughs> 1922 paper in Scientific Monthly titled Falsifications in the History of Early Chemistry by J.M. Stillman gives us a little more context. The paper supports the idea that chemistry has its roots in the metallurgy practices of ancient Egyptians, and specifically a certain cult of the Egyptian priesthood. This makes sense when we think about it. Egyptian priests were responsible for preparing the dead for burial, and as we know, burial in ancient Egypt wasn't really like a set it and forget it thing. It's not a corpse for immortality. <laughs> <laughs> so preparing the dead was an elaborate tradition, removing specific organs, placing them in jars, embalming the bodies, dressing them, and then there's a the whole tomb and sarcophagus thing. The higher status you had, the more elaborate your tomb would be. It's not uncommon for the richest and most powerful to be gilded in precious metals and gemstones. So naturally, you would imagine it would be important for these priests to have a good understanding of how to work with metal, human anatomy, and chemistry. That was a really big deal, as it was believed that what you're buried with was what you'd bring with you to your next life, so it better be good. Well, how better to demonstrate the power of your gods than by performing miracles? It really were just science that no one else understood. But what else would be good is being able to make basic metals look like gold or silver or making alloys to extend the mileage of your precious metals. The story goes that they could only learn these secrets if you joined the priesthood and swore an oath to never tell anyone. 
Secrecy likely isn't the only reason this, that so little exists about these early alchemic practices. Around 300 BC, the first Hermetic writings are found. Hermeticism is a philosophical, philosophical system. Philosophical system. Philosophical. Philosophical system. Thank you. You're welcome. That is primarily <laughs> that is primarily based on the teachings of Hermes Trismegistus, which is Trismegistus basically means great, great, great. It's unclear whether or not Hermes was a real person. Some believing he's a combination of the Greek god Hermes and the Egyptian god Thoth. Others assert that Hermes was just Hermes' third of his line. Whatever the case, the writings that were attributed to him span centuries, up until around 1200 AD. So for a dead, likely never have existed dude, he was an awfully prolific writer. So one of his <laughs> philosophies specifically was about reincarnation. So, you know, take that as you will. Uh, hermeticism and alchemy are closely linked, and alchemy often is referred to as her hermetic arts or the hermetic philosophy. Hermes bore a staff that had two snakes entwined around it, and this symbol would become deeply associated with alchemy, and eventually medicine. Wasn't that the sign of Aesculapius, the, the Roman god, like the Roman god of medicine too? Or is his only one snake? I do not know. I'm gonna look uh, real quick because I, I have know. a question. Yeah. I did a lot of reading on Hermeticism for my research too, so it's interesting. <laughs> this is Hermes Trimegistus or whatever you want. I do not have to pronounce his okay. name. You can see his cool staff. Good times. So, Aesculapius is the god of medicine, son of Apollo, and has a like his, his sign or whatever as a branch surrounded by a single snake. Mm. Okay. So, this, this guy just added another snake to be better. <laughs> More snakes, the better. Yeah. I know what I'm talking about. Those guys don't know, don't got anything on me. So, and then Hermes had the snake with the or the staff with the two snakes and the wings. Okay, so then that was so Greek Hermes has the, the wings on it. Then it's weird that they both are staffs with snake for medicine. I don't know. It just sorry, it tripped off, and I wanted to figure it out. Oh, good. <laughs> So it's generally agreed that Western alchemy was already in play by the Hellenistic period of ancient Egypt, which ran from 305 to 30 BC, part of which was in Alexandria. Well, Alexandria is in Egypt, don't let that fool you. Alexandria was founded by Alexander the Great in 331 BC, and so by and large, the city would be mostly what we consider Greek Roman. So this is why the earliest alchemical texts that we have are very much a conglomerate of Egyptian alchemy, Greek philosophy, and various religious traditions. One of the earliest Western alchemists we know by name was actually a woman <laughs> known as Mary the Jewess or Mary the Prophetess. Oh, Mary the Prophetess. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Having a moment. Anyways. <laughs> Here's a picture of the lovely lady. Um, she lived in Alexandria during the first century. While not a lot is of her own work survived, much of what we know came from another alchemist known as Zosimo of Panopolis in the third century. We'll talk to him about him in a minute, but... Through Zosimo, many of the beliefs of Mary can be observed. Mary incorporated lifelike attributes into her descriptions of metal, such as bodies, souls, and spirits. Mary believed that metals had two different genders, and by joining these two genders together, a new entity could be made. She's also credited with the invention of several kinds of, of chemical apparatuses. One such invention is known as a tribicos, uh, which was an alembic with three arms that was used to obtain substances purified by distillation. 
got a diagram here. Oh, weird. Yeah. So the article I was reading said that this apparatus is still used by chemists today, but I could not find any photos of such a thing. It's possible it's used under a different name now, or this statement is simply wrong. She does survive in a setup known as a bain-marie, or as you likely know it, a double boiler. <laughs> uh, a Mary bath! <laughs> yes! So a process where water is heated in one vessel, another is placed in or above the water, designed to provide a more consistent or longer-lasting heat. Also is used to make homemade hollandaise sauce, which is really important. Yeah, most important. More chocolate, melting chocolate, <laughs> so you don't burn your chocolate. A diagram and a picture of a yes. double in case you don't know yep. what that is. So Mary is also another interesting credit, being one of four female alchemists that could make the Philosopher's Stone. The other three being known as Cleopatra, not the Pharaoh, Dara, and Tafnutia. So it's important to note that it is not a claim that she made. Not that we're aware of anyways, but was instead attributed to her in the early 1600s by an alchemist named Michael Meyer. An alchemist? Mmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. So, 388, we get to Zosimus of Panopolis, who was a Greek Alexandrian scholar, and he wrote a handful of alchemical texts, most of which have survived to today, and some of the earliest complete writings on alchemy we have, where much of the Western alchemic lore drew from him. He also is who popularized the word, the use of the word chemia, which would eventually get turned into alchemy. He wrote that he had traced the alchemical arts back to Egyptian metallurgical and ceremonial practices. While he did not speak a lot about the scientific aspects of this practice, he didn't shy away from the more mystical. In his book, The Final Abstinences, or also known as The Final Count, he goes on to explain that the ancient practice of tinctures, the technical Greek name for alchemy, had been taken over by certain demons who taught the art only to those that offered them sacrifices. Oh, okay. So this would be an idea that persists throughout centuries. So the 1587 story of the alchemist Johann Frost and his deal with the devil to unlock all knowledge comes to mind. Cosimo also called these demons the guardian of places and those that offered them sacrifices priests making it likely that he was referring to the gods of Egypt and their priests. While critical of the Egyptian roots, he acknowledged their contributions and traditions, and attests that the practice could go back to 3000 BC. Zosima of Panopolis is actually the first known mention of the Philosopher's Stone. The later scholars would claim that the stone went back even further, all the way to Adam, who acquired the knowledge from God himself. But we don't have any citations on that, so... <laughs> So, Philosopher's Stone, obviously we have to talk about that. You most likely heard about it through Harry Potter, it's wizard creator Nicholas Flamel, stone that could provide immortality. But the real history is a little more complex. The Philosopher's Stone is a mythical substance that was said to be the catalyst for the process known as chrysopeia, or the turning of base metals and like lead into precious metals like gold or silver was the most sought-after goal in alchemy. It symbolized perfection at its finest, enlightenment, and heavenly bliss. It was the top-tier psychic powers that Scientology promises but never delivers. And actually, the term magnum opus, meaning great work, is the term that describes the process of making this. And that's where we get it from. What? Really? Yeah. Hey, oh my god. Okay, well that's incredible. But we know the prop- about the properties of transmutation and ability to make you immortal. The stone actually had other abilities, like to heal all forms of illness, um, creation of perpetually burning lamps, transmutation of common crystals into precious stones and diamonds, 
reviving of dead plants, and the creation of a flexible and malleable glass, and finally the creation of a clone or homunculus. Oh, yeah, homunculus, yeah. Okay. Wild. Oh, that just makes me think of Full Metal Alchemist, and now I'm sad. Yep. <laughs> As a side note, to gain extended life, you must consume a small part of the stone diluted in wine. Who doesn't love a good life-prolonging drink? <laughs> Over the centuries, the stone has been called hundreds of things, from the calculus albus, which is white stone, to lapis, to vitriol, and sometimes just referred to as stone. Um, some claim that the stone came in multiple flavors, a white stone that could make silver and a red one that could make gold, with the white being kind of the less mature version. Some said it was a reddish purple glass-like trinket that, it, that it weighed more than gold and that it was soluble in any liquid but was impervious to fire. What was it made of? And that's the million dollar question. You check the works of 10 alchemists, you will find 10 different answers. But some of the suspected components include Monday things like metals, plants, rocks, chemicals, and other bodily products like hair and saliva. Ew. Others had more mystical explanations, one being that its creation required a mythical element called karma. Just like the ingredients, the directions for creation are just as varied, often expressed as a series of color changes or chemical processes. The work may pass through the phases of negrito, albedo, citronitis, and rubido, which basically is black, white, yellow, and then red. Okay. Yeah. When expressed as a series of chemical processes, it's often included seven or twelve stages, concluding in, concluding in multiplication and projection. I'm sorry, did you say multiplication? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> okay. And projection. <laughs> this stone could do anything. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It, it's like it's like telling the genie that you want to wish for infinite wishes. It's like the, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the philosopher's stone. <laughs> yes. Just keep making them. You'll never run out. The theory for the creation of the stone brings us back to classical elements as defined by ancient Greek ph philosophers. Earth, fire, water, and air, just like the Avatar. <laughs> it is believed that all things are comprised of these elements in different combinations. Metal, in particular, are comprised of all four, with two being exterior and two being interior. And the different combinations is what produced each metal. The idea behind the stone would be that transmutation could cause these elements to shuffle. And that's how you'd make a new metal. You know what? Aww. I just had a thought. That what if the Voynich manuscript is telling people how to make a philosopher's stone? It could be. <laughs> it definitely could hell. be. I started out saying it as a joke, and then it kind of like <laughs> got, <you. laughs> got real serious. Oh no! <laughs> this stone is so elusive that only a handful full of people allegedly ever made it. Alchemists in the Middle Ages became particularly interested in this, and since no one knew how to make the stone, a dry red powder was marketed as a necessary component for alchemy, said to have been derived from a stone. This powder was called Zerion in Greek. I have no idea what this powder was, but uh, definitely uh -huh. was a scam. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Probably the blood of the people that they just, you know, offed for stuff. Where I'm going with it. Okay. <laughs> human human components. That's how you make you know, the philosopher's stone. <laughs> As for Nicholas Fomel, well, we'll get there. Just know that he was not a wizard, probably. Oh, you're probably wondering at this point if Western alchemy started in ancient Egypt, how come we're only hearing about it from a bunch of Greek colonialists? 
Allegedly, much of the alchemic literature in Egypt was lost in 292 AD when the Roman emperor Diocletian ordered the burning of alchemical books after suppressing a revolt in Alexandria. I first read this to stop me dead because that very day that I was recently searching this, I watched a video that morning about how everything we think we know about the Library of Alexandria came from texts and documents written centuries later, and most of it probably isn't true. The most oh shit. Yeah, the, the famous uber destruction that we all know about may not have actually happened, so I had to look into this. <laughs> so Diocletian was a, re was a religious man, and it's easy to argue that alchemical texts, especially if they were referenced to Egyptian gods, as you'd expect them to if they were written by Egyptian priests, could be seen as blasphemous and worthy of destruction, so that's not a far stretch. I was able to follow this citation back to A Short History of Chemistry by James Riddick Partington, this book has been challenged, but I found a snippet on Google Books. On page 20, in the 1937 publishing of this book, it says, An edict of the Emperor Diocletian in 296 AD, given by Suetus of the 10th century, from an older source in which the Book of the Egyptians in Alexandria on Chemia are ordered to be burnt. Actually, I had to find who Suetus was and uh, what he said, which was, a, <laughs> which was a journey. Turns out the guy wrote a large 10th century Byzantine uh, encyclopedia of the ancient Mediterranean world that included both Greek and Latin and not a word of English. So, but searching the terms that I knew in Latin and Greek, I was able to find the passage. Share this beautiful piece of text with you. <laughs> now, obviously, I don't speak or read Latin, but um, I managed to talk to Google Translate, which kind of gave me a basic translation. Um, which basically oh, man. Is, you should tell uh, you should tell the University of Alberta. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was laughing about that. I was like, oh gosh. Um, basically, but basically, what this passage says: this is the um, encyclopedia entry for chem for chemistry. So, chemistry or the art of making silver and gold. Diocletian's alchemical books were read out. Quote: Diocletian, on account of the tumult which they had excited, tormented them with all bitterness and cruelty. When he had finished, he delivered to the fire the books written by the ancient Egyptians on the chemistry of gold and silver. They had confidence in wealth and courage to rebel against the Egyptians. Hmm. So, that does sound like Diocletian burnt the books um, as a response to a rebellion that occurred, but Suetus did not cite his source, so who knows where he got that from. This would have been during the time of the rise of Christianity, and much of Rome was of that persuasion by this point. We know that that went smoothly and did not trample on anyone else's pagan beliefs in the slightest. Uh, during this time, Christian nations were traveling the countryside, destroying pagan temples and schools and converting whoever they could get their hands that would submit. Those who weren't as malleable were killed or fled or scattering these scholars to the far corners of the world. According to J.M. Selwyn's 1922 paper, xenophobia and Christian, Christian righteousness weren't the only reasons that Diocletian may have done away with these texts. There was a great fear that if these practitioners could do half of what was said that they could do, it could destroy everything. The idea that anyone with this knowledge could make artificial silver or gold was terrifying as it would cripple the economy of the entire Roman Empire. Not to mention that when your society is built on the backs of slavery and conquest, the idea that if it fell into the, quote, wrong hands, that would power the very people that you're trying to oppress was not favorable to those in power. So they were yeah. literally afraid. That if this was like, true, we um, we should unban those books and teach <laughs> critical race theory in schools. Is what I'm hearing. Right. <laughs> uh, 
But with Egypt being all but conquered by the Romans at this point, the Egyptian priesthood scattered and all their great works and temples were being destroyed and the art of alchemy was at serious risk of disappearing forever. So trying to gather and document this knowledge would put anyone at risk of being perceived as a quote bad Christian, which was a very dangerous thing to be at the time. If you wanted to write about this stuff, you needed to make it unclear that that's actually what you were writing about. Enter the mystical allegories, illusions, and soon ciphers and codes. For original Egyptian documents on alchemy, there are a couple that have survived, most notably the Stockholm Papyrus and the Leyden Papyrus, which date from 250 to 300 AD. They contain recipes for dyeing, making artificial gemstones, cleaning and fabricating pearls, and the manufacturing of imitation gold and silver. So, Wild Zosima's works are the most complete. In them, he cites other works that came before him. One in particular is the writings of Democritus. His works contained recipes for making imitation gold and silver and dyes, etc. They were also rich with the mystical philosophy and obscure allegories. Democritus wrote, allegedly wrote four books on the topic, though today only snippets survive of two of them. While cool and all, there's a reason Democritus is particularly important in an unusual way, as he may represent one of the first alchemical pseudograph writers. Because Democritus was a pen name. We know oh. that writing about alchemy wasn't safe. Um, for much of history, it wasn't safe. Secret we see has always been important. So yeah, code ciphers might obscure the work, but how do you obscure the authorship? <laughs> we would see many ways that this is done. Falsification of names and dates. But one of the most beloved ways to publish your alchemical work was to publish it and attribute it to a now-dead author because now they could, because you can't arrest the dead. <laughs> Yeah. So the work of Democritus has long been attributed to a man named Democritus of Abdera, who lived in the 5th century BC. In fact, the person that we know who made this connection was Pliny the Elder <laughs> in 1780. Oh my god! No! <laughs> <laughs> a contemporary oh, to Pliny, Columella, asserts that Democritus was actually Bolos of Mendes in Egypt, who lived in the 3rd century BC, but this is mostly forgotten for the next couple centuries, so Democritus of Abdera gets all the credit. To this day, we don't really know who Democritus was, or even when he lived. This can be said about many of the most well-known authors associated with alchemy. But it's important to keep this in mind as we go forward. Maybe this well-known author was a secret alchemist, and it didn't come up until he died. Or maybe someone else just thought they would make a good pseudonym. <laughs> most of the Greco-Roman alchemists preceding Zosimo are known only by these pseudonyms, such as Moses, Isis, Cleopatra, Democritus, and Ostanes. Other authors such as Comarius and Kimes were, were we only have we only know through fragments of text. After 400 AD, Greek alchemical writers occupied themselves solely in commenting on the work of their predecessors. You can't write anything new. So while the Christian Church ruled what they considered the West at the time with an iron fist, there were small cards that were worked hard to keep this knowledge alive and piece together fragments they could find. Particularly, there was one in Byzantium. But then the Muslims show up. So, mid-7th century Muslim powers had risen, conquering much of Western Asia and the Mediterranean, which would lead to assimilation of Greek Alexandrian science, most notably by Syrian schools founded by many Rome's, quote, pagan fugitive scholars, bringing with them whatever alchemical texts they could rescue. It would be around this time that the term for the science would shift from chemia to alchemia. Allegedly, it was Islamic royalty that sparked this interest, in particular the Prince Khalid ibn Yazid. He was thought to be an alchemist in his own right, is thought to have written many alchemic texts in Arabic, 
which would eventually get it translated into Latin under the name Khalid with a C instead of K. But like many alchemist authors, his true identity is strongly debated. Was it a prince or was this some guy using his name? I don't know. Who would, who would accuse a prince of something like that, right? <laughs> right. But the thing was, like, alchemy in um, these nations wasn't a forbidden thing like it was in Maybe time. it was the guy formerly known as the prince. <laughs> Right. So around 8th or 9th centuries, a new prominent alchemical text would first appear in Arabic sources and attribute to none other than Hermes, Trimestis, the love child of the gods Hermes and Thoth. For many early alchemists, this was their Bible, the foundation of their art. Since its initial discovery, it has been translated and republished countless times. The oldest known source was a Syrian manuscript titled The Secret of Creation and the Art of Nature, or the Book of Causes. An encyclopedic work on natural philosophy falsely attributed to Apollonius of Tiana, a Greek philosopher that lived during the first century. Like everything alchemy, the true author is heavily debated, though most can agree that it most likely wasn't Apollonius. In the book, the author tells his readers that he discovered this text in a vault below a statue of Hermes in Tiana, and that inside the vault was an old corpse on a golden throne holding an emerald tablet. So an illustration here of... Oh, this is a 17th century um, illustration illustrating the emerald tablet, which you guys have probably seen this drawing at some point. Yeah. Jesus Christ, that thing's fucking huge. I was thinking like uh, like a book size, like like, like regular legal paper, but no. Uh, It says it's an imaginative 17th century depiction, so... Okay, okay. Maybe this is the original that the Emerald Tablet got written down from. So the earliest translation roughly goes as follows. Truth, certainty, that in which there is no doubt. That which is above is from that which is below. That which is below is from that which is above. Working the miracles of one thing as all things were from one. Its father is the sun and its mother the moon. The earth carried it in her belly and the wind nourished it in her belly. As earth would... As earth which shall become fire, feed the earth from which is settled. With the greatest power, it ascends from the earth to the heaven and becomes ruler over that which is above and that which is below. And this is where we get the quote as above, so below. So we're learning all about quotes today. (laughs) Okay, then. Everything comes from alchemy. Yeah, people love this thing. It became like the alchemist's Bible. When all else fails, look to the Emerald Tablet for answers. Sorry, it feels very like um like Wicca. Like very fake <laughs> made up <laughs> mysticism to me. I don't know. I'm pretty sure that like I read a book and that was in there. Maybe they pulled it from alchemy because of that, but it also feels very like manifest. Probably. Manifest your destiny and just have positive vibes, babe. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen the show Dark. No, um, but in it, there's a guy who's basically a time traveler, and he has that tattooed on his back, and I didn't know where it was from, and I was like, "Wait a second. Apparently, it's it was the emerald tablet. He's got tattooed on his back. All right, time traveling. So wow. alchemy grew very popular in the Islamic nations, and many alchemic texts were produced. The most famous of which are attributed to Geber or Jabir whose work is the prolific, vast, and comprehensive, once consisting of over 600 works, apparently. At this point, scholars tend to agree that a singular Jabir, 
never ever really existed that it was thought to be the library work of a created by a group of uh sheets i can't say this word alchemists which is basically a branch of islam um and was written in the 9th and 10th centuries the Jebir texts that remain prominent today primarily focus on alchemy, chemistry, and magic, but the original collection covered a large array of topics, including cosmology, astronomy, astrology, medicine, pharmacology, zoology, botany, meta to metaphysics, to logic, and grammar. So this maybe is the Voynich manuscript, I don't know. Could be, could be. If there's naked ladies coming out of pipes and sitting in green water, we got a winner. <laughs> <laughs> These texts describe the work of an experienced and capable chemist familiar with and describing well the methods of distillation, sublimation, furnace operations, purifications of metallic salts and solutions. Basically, it was very scientific. Um, this also contained the first definitive information about the preparation of mineral acids, referred to as sharp or corrosive waters. Oh, Acid, okay. sharp or corrosive water. Would you like still or sparkling or sharp or corrosive water today with your meal? <laughs> Fuck. You could call sparkling water sharp. It's, it it's could like be. Little, That's true. little fun Tic Tacs in your mouth. Little, <laughs> little, little spiky bits. <laughs> um, these texts also contain the oldest known systematic classification of chemical substances and the oldest known directions on how to derive an inorganic compound from organic substances by chemical means. I think that's cool. I don't know. I'm a science nerd. <laughs> I'm figuring out chemistry in 980. So much of the texts were informed by a philosophical theory known as the science of balance, which sought to break down all phenomena into a scientific analysis and quantitative components and directions. The practical approach was very valuable in a sea of alchemic texts written in code and presented via allegory. Paul Krauss, a 1900 scholar with a focus on Arabic philosophy, alchemy, and chemistry, wrote this. The relatively clear description of the processes and alchemical apparatus, the methodical classification of the substances, mark an experimental spirit which is extremely far away from the weird and odd esotericism of the Greek texts. The theory on which Jabir supports his operation is one of clearness and of impressive unity. More than with the other Arab authors, one notes with him a balance between theoretical teaching and practical teaching, between the ilm and the mal, whatever that means. So yeah, this was like real science, which is cool. So between the 13th and 14th centuries, these texts would come back into prominence when they were translated into Latin and published in Europe, where I found a whole new audience. And one of the more interesting aspects of Jabir's work was that the stated goal of Taquin, the artificial creation of life in the alchemic laboratory, up to and including human life. And it is wow. thought that through these writings, the concept of philosopher's stone was brought to European alchemy. Hmm. Creation of life. Well, all right then. From the 19th to the 14th century, alchemical theories faced criticism from practical Muslim chemists who balked at the concept of transmuting metals. Islamic alchemists took a more scientific approach, where much of the early Greek alchemic work worked in allegory and religious context. In the 11th century, Muslim alchemists debated that if this was even possible, leading opponent with a leading opponent with a Persian polymath Avicenna, who, de who described the theory of transmutation of substances, stating, "Those of chemical craft know well that no change can be effected in the different species of substances." though they can produce the appearance of such change. There is some irony that the Christian church was responsible for driving alchemy out of Egypt and Rome and into the Muslim nations, only for it to be semi-responsible for it coming to Europe. Alchemy's entry to Europe came with texts translated from Arabic into Latin, frequently by monks. The first such text was translated by Robert of Chester of the book, in the book, The Book of Composition of Alchemy. 
which was published on February 11th, 1144 AD. We don't know if Robert of Chester worked for the church or not, we, as we aren't 100% sure who he is. There's a high probability that he did as a scribe was a highly valued profession and one most frequently employed by the church or nobility. It's possible and likely that some of the Islamic, Egyptian, and or Greek practitioners of alchemy made their way to Europe at some point and continued their trade in secret. We'll likely never know because it would have been a secret. Anyways, the book contains a dialogue between the Byz a Byzantine monk named Morinius and Kalad Yazid, so our, our famous prince. Sorry, it would detail what the word alchemy means as a preface, indicating that the word was not used in the Latin world yet. It also sparked a new interest, particularly in 12th century Toledo, Spain, where numerous translations of Arabic texts of the practice became available. These, were brought, uh, these brought many words that Latin did not have an equivalent for, including alcohol, carboy, elixir, athanar are examples. Meanwhile, the theologian contemporaries of these translators made strides towards reconciling faith and experimental rationalism, thereby priming Europe for a broader introduction to alchemy. These early scribes pushed for the idea that faith and science were not so far apart and that God was science. So, okay, maybe the church wasn't directly responsible for coming to Europe, but it certainly helped. Yeah. Not that it was lovingly embraced, it still meant opposition. The populace, and more importantly, the leaders, thoroughly believed that alchemists could make gold and silver out of nothing. And just like the Roman emperors of ages past, this made them really uncomfortable. They viewed the art with much suspicion and feared for their economies. Then we get to Roger Bacon. The dude. So in the 13th century, a Franciscan friar known as Roger Bacon had become a prominent encyclopedist, working to translate all manner of texts into Latin, but notably had a special interest in many of these science-related texts. It was in Bacon, Bacon's alchemical translations we would see commentary connecting alchemic principles with Christian theology, concepts like morality and salvation pairing well with the ideas an alchemy of enlightenment and the perfection of the human body, mind, and soul to the point of immortality. He would advocate for the use of alchemic, pr alchemic principles in natural sciences and medicine. As expected, after Bacon's death, his name became attributed to many found alchemic texts and stories, arose of him being an archmage in the end days of his life. One such story told that he'd created a brazen head, a head made of bronze or brass that was both magical and mechanical, like an automaton and the head could answer correctly any question it was asked. So as an extra fun tidbit, the brazen head would be used in a sample dungeon provided in the 1977 D&D-based rule set where the head was mounted no. next to an inscribed riddle that players could then solve, if they solved, they could answer it, ask it a question once a day. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> I had to include that as well. That is amazing. That's great. <laughs> it wasn't long after Bacon's work that Javier's work would be translated and published in Europe. And in the 13th century, scientist and philosopher Albertus Magnus is said to have discovered the philosopher's stone. Magnus does not confirm he discovered the stone in his own writings, but he, he had, but he did record that he witnessed the creation of gold by transmutation. Hmm. At the end of 13th century, Western alchemy had developed into a fairly structured belief system. One such one such example is the concept that if one could figure out the process that would affect minerals and other substances, the same techniques could be used on humans for similar results. For example, if you could determine the secret to purifying gold, you could use those techniques to purify the human soul. Oh, well, so we're not just transmuting gold. That's okay. Human soul, yeah. anyone? You're no. transmuting souls. Transmuting souls. Yeah. Always going well. Yeah. I would rather be... A corpse-free immortal, but thank you. Yeah. <laughs>
Nobody. I think I think after this episode, Hallie needs to stomach sitting through Full Metal Alchemist. No, Aww. she does not. No, it'll, it'll <laughs> break her. We don't want to break. Her. I don't. Th- I don't think I could do it. It's, it's very I, sad. It's sad. Mm, there's 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 <laughs> there's kind of a joke in the fandom. It's not really a joke oh, no. based on a plot line where. A man. Spoilers if you haven't seen it. It's his daughter and dog together into one entity. Yeah, his. Oh. Yeah, he he transmutes his daughter and his and her dog into a single. Oh. Into a chimera. Uh, That's <laughs> fucked up. It's yep. super fucked, <laughs> especially because you don't see it coming, and then it happens, and then you just sit there and kind of cry for a while, and you can't look at dogs. Yeah, the main the main character just comes in. Oh, look! Oh, this is a weird dog. Hey, where where's your daughter and dog and dog? And he's just kind of like right there. Hey, hey. <laughs> oh, the one yeah. one like, oh, I don't like it. Oh, yeah. No, and it can kind of talk. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Terrifying. But there are some good anyway. scenes in there. While structured and fairly consistent, most, if not all, of these texts were heavily coded and shrouded a mystery. Not only that, often traps and misleading information would be embedded in them to trip up the uninitiated. Point it manuscript? Is it a trap? An alchemical (laughs) trap? Could be. Could be. You just trick your enemies into making chlorine gas. (laughs) Oh my god. Alchemy would evolve, experimentation with chemicals, observing and recording these details grew popular, but the spiritual aspects continued to grow as well. With the integration of Christian theology, we saw a shift in belief to where the human soul had been sundered in two because of the fall of Adam. So by purifying both halves, the person could be then reunited with God. Isn't that what Jesus was for? Oh yeah, well, he didn't like, do a very I... good job of it, I guess. But in the 14th century, alchemy became more accessible to those outside of the Latin-speaking churchmen and scholars. Alchemical discourse shifted from the scholarly uh, philosophical debates and instead to a social commentary less about the work but more about the alchemists themselves because now everyone can get in on this and most people didn't care about the science and it may have been uh, in response to this growing interest in alchemy that in 1317 uh, pope john the 22nd would make a decree in regard to alchemy and surprisingly not one tied to religion specifically he forbade what he forbade was alchemical charlatans Specified that any person who either produced, successfully ordered the production of, or assisted in the production of, production of, or knowingly sold false alchemic metals in an attempt to pay off debts would be sentenced to pay a fine. The fine was to be calculated by weighing the alchemic metal and then charging however much the weight of the real silver or gold would cost. It's like, surprisingly reasonable. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, you're selling bullshit? Okay, snake oil that hurts people? All right. We're going to handle that. I didn't really care about anything else. It was just about the transmuted metals. <laughs> or the manufactured yeah, that metals. Is, that is something else. Okay. If you want to drink some I, mercury, go for it. <laughs> yeah, I guess if like your main concern is like economic impact, then that's the best way of preventing people from fucking up your system, right? Right. So if the person couldn't pay, jail time would be determined based on the circumstances of the fraud. The worst punishment, though, was for the clerics who were found practicing alchemic fraud. These clerics would be kicked from the church, lose all standing and benefits, as well as face the other punishments mentioned. While this didn't straight-up ban alchemy, it did make the situation a little more precarious, especially since most alchemists were really interested in the idea of transmutation. 
Around this time, we'd see John, Dante and Chaucer and many well-known writers at the time paint all alchemists as thieves and liars. Right then. Uh, Raimundus Lewis was a prominent churchman and writer on theology and philosophy who died in 1315 while carrying out missionary work among the Moors. In the Middle Ages, he was considered one of the great masters of alchemy. His scholarly biographer, B. Harrow, cites the titles of some 80 alchemical texts attributed to him. But it doesn't take long to realize that some of, if not most, of these famous works were dated between 1330 and 1333, you know, 15 years after he died, and it's generally agreed that he never wrote anything about alchemy. In the sixth, we would see the Roman Catholic Inquisitor General Nicholas Emmerich associate alchemy with demonic rituals, insisting that the alleged magic of alchemy was not the same as the more positive magic found in scripture. Just the, the thing of... at the time. Yeah, there there was there was herbal and like religious or spiritual magic, and then there was like the dirty, dirty stuff that people did that was like black magic, and so it was sorogelium. I'm gonna pronounce that wrong, but it was basically sorcery or sorcerer, and then there was the demonic form of magic. It's so um, fascinating, and it was very divided at the time. Yeah, you were if you were a cunning folk, if you were an apothecary, as long as you weren't like. Yeah, yeah. If you were doing any of that in accordance, they they kind of left it alone for a really long time. The church did, and then you start to see all of that um, really bleed into ah, the devils and what you're doing if you don't obey what we do. The church, the church, kind of a thing started kind like of coming around. Sense. Like, yeah, yep, 1600s. Yeah, is when you start really seeing it. <laughs> well, in 1403, Henry IV of England bans the practice of multiplying metals. It was, although it was possible to buy a license to attempt to make gold alchemically, and a number were granted by Henry VI and Edward V. Fourth, so these critiques and regulations centered more around pseudo-alchemical charlatanism than the actual study of alchemy, which continued with an increasingly Christian tone. Which, as you know, how he was just saying, it makes sense then that like why they're like, but this is good magic, right? But God and Jesus and stuff. Renaissance alchemists had a plethora of career opportunities, becoming contracted for anything from mining, medicine, chemical production, metallurgy, and even in, with gemstones. Most of these applications were legitimate. The, the, the Renaissance did have its fair share of charlatans. Self-proclaimed alchemists utilized sleight of hand and promises of life-changing knowledge to earn their way through the world. This became such a problem that some of these alleged alchemy, alchemists were <laughs> prosecuted for fraud the crossroads for many professional sciences, which today we consider completely separate entities. Alchemists becoming a bit of a pseudo-scientific, pseudo-spiritual jack-of-all-trades, but these alchemists did change the world. Turns out that as submarines, the only reason they're possible is because alchemy discovered how to distill oxygen. Also, apparently Isaac oh. Newton was an alchemist. Oh, yeah, no. Really? Wasn't he? Wow. I think he was trying to get the philosopher's stone. Like he thought it was like a real ass thing and was like gung ho. Oh man! In the early 1500s, Europe, we saw a shift in Western alchemy brought in by Periclesis. Periclesis saw the potential for al for chemicals and minerals to be used in medicine, like China had been doing for thousands of years. Quote: mm -hmm. Many have said of alchemy that it is for the making of gold and silver. For me, such is not the aim, but to consider only what virtue and power may lie in medicines. His thoughts were that sickness and health in the body were dependent on the balance of man the microcosm and nature the macrocosm. This view wasn't particularly new, it just had been oriented around soul purification, not physical health. He believed the body required certain balances of minerals and certain illnesses 
could be cured by chemical. I mean, yeah. <laughs> but most of the stuff wouldn't be coming to practice for another couple hundred years. Yeah. Yeah, I was on to it. And of course, we get to the late 1500s, which is Holly's favorite person, John D. Yes. John D was serving as the consultant of Queen Elizabeth I. He leaned into the more cult and mystical aspects of alchemy, but was best known for his angel summoning, divination, astrology, and cryptography. Yes. So, Hallie, you have to do a thing on this guy. I don't have time to go into him, I'm, obviously. I, I legit bought a, a used book on him. It's called The Queen's Conjurer. I bought it because I was like, I need to get into this weird-ass dude. <laughs> so, yeah, then Rudolf II, the Holy Roman Emperor of the late 16th century, mm-hmm. famously received and sponsored several alchemists in his court in Prague, including D for a time. It had became popular for the powerful and wealthy to have an alchemist at their beck and call. And Dee's legacy didn't end with him. His son Arthur would take up the alchemical mantle and found himself serving English and Russian royalty. During the 17th century, we would see alchemy lean into the supernatural again, many thinking that not only was the Philosopher's Stone all these wonderful magical things, it could also be used to communicate with angels. Okay. <laughs> Why not? Sure. So thinking of Philosopher's Stone, hope you didn't forget about Nicholas Flamel, because it's time that we finally talk about him. He was a real person, though not a wizard from what we can tell. He was born in 1330 France and was a scribe and manuscript seller. He seemed to be a relatively normal guy. He married a wealthy woman, ran his manuscript shops, and the couple were said to be generous philanthropists. To become associated with the Philosopher's Stone? Well, 1612 Paris, an alchemical book is published called The Exposition of Hieroglyphical Figures, and the book was attributed to Nicolas Flamel. The publisher introduces the book, saying that Flamel has spent his entire life looking for the Philosopher's Stone. According to this intro, Flamel came across a mysterious 21-page book in 1357 and became fascinated by it. In 1378, he traveled to Spain for assistance with translating the book, and on the way back, he met a sage who identified the book as an original copy of the Book of Abramelin. The story of Abramelin is an Egyptian mage who meets Abraham of Worms, who was a Jewish man from Worms, Germany. Abramelin taught Abraham magic. With this knowledge, over the next few years, Flamel and his wife allegedly decoded enough of the book to successfully replicate its recipe for the Philosopher's Stone and producing silver in 1382 and then eventually gold. From there on, legends around Flamel would grow, except that there's a few problems with this whole story. There's no evidence that Flamel was an alchemist. His, this claim never occurred until the book's initial publishing in 1612, 200 years after his death. Yeah, he died at 70. So clearly, if he had found the stones, the powers of immortality weren't as advertised. Or now he's Keanu Reeves. I don't know. <laughs> sure, it's just Keanu Reeves. Keanu. Keanu. <laughs> Next issue is that Femel, it says that Femel found the Book of Abramelin in 1357, except that the guy the story was about was thought to have been born in 1362. So not having been born yet, when Femel allegedly found a book about his life. I've issue finding the original publishing date for this book, but within the book, which is comprised of a series of letters, it states the date as 1458. The earliest printed copies of this book date to 1608 were written in German. But yeah. Nicholas Femel is often cited as the person who discovered the Philosopher's Stone, though if we're to believe Zosimo, he's several centuries late to the punch. In 1677, there was a book that was published called The Mutus Labor. In, the, in its initial printing, no more than a dozen copies were made. The book contained no words. This book, when you're talking about the Voynich Magic, it reminded me a lot of this book. Yeah, 15 pages, all illustrations, virtually no words. No one knows what the fuck it is, where it came from. Most think that there is a secret uh, recipe in there for the Philosopher's Stone. I'll post a picture here. These whole books with no explanation are kind of wild. 
Yeah, and like one of the guys that like thought they figured it out was that thought of the same thing as the Wayne manuscript where it wasn't in the pages weren't in the right order, which is when you said that I was like, yeah, yeah, weird as shit. Wow, yeah, that is <laughs> wow. This book is crazy as it's been consistently published nearly every thirty years since it was initials publishment. What? Two thousand fifteen. It's me. Yeah. Who the fuck keeps publishing? <laughs> everybody. Oh everybody. Oh my god. Hey, this book's pretty neat. It's, it's cool looking. There's some cool <laughs> illustrations in it. And there's some newer versions that have been colorized and stuff. It's cool looking at. Um, I, I, I have a couple copies, thanks oh. to different PDFs for it, that I'll post on the website. Oh, since we talked about him, here's good old John D for you. That beard, though. Right? That beard. That beard. It's a triangle he's, beard. He's obviously a fucking wizard. Look at that beard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I... I low-key want to grow a beard just because I think they're kind of fun. And like, look at all the fun ways you can style it. You'll be the Great you'll be the best book. dwarf in all of the lands. Hell fucking exactly. yeah! <laughs> yeah, alchemist and scholars have poured over this book endlessly, looking for a secret meeting, and none has never been found if it ever existed at all. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> The seeds of dismissal began to be planted in the 17th century, and over the next 200 years, we'd see alchemy fade away as a general disdain for ancient wisdom became more and more prominent. The roles of knowledge that were once delegated to those in the alchemical profession began to branch off into their own practices by 1720. Alchemy and chemistry had a firm line drawn between the two of them. By the 1740s, alchemists by and large were thought to be frauds who claimed that they could make gold. No one believed it anymore. In the 19th, early 19th century, we would see occultism come back, back and become an interest again. And with its resurrection, the alchemical arts. Though now anything that may have been scientific, scientific was downplayed and reconstrued into a more spiritual sense. Marianne Atwood, an English writer with passion for alchemy, wrote, No modern, modern art or chemistry, notwithstanding all its surreptitious claims, has anything in common with alchemy. Atwood and her other contemporaries flipped the script where... Once ancient alchemists incorporated theology and allegory to hide their scientific works, this new generation of alchemists believed that the more scientific and practical aspects of ancient alchemy were actually the mask, concealing a deep spiritual meaning that ancient alchemists felt like they had to hide for fear of accusations of blasphemy. Yes, yes. Wild. Today, alchemy is a mostly, uh, uh, mostly a mysterious practice of times past, but there is one particular area that we see elements of this art. <laughs> That is the New Age spiritual and medicinal beliefs. <laughs> so concepts around crystals for divination and healing, tinctures, essential oils to treat all things that ail you, mysterious herbal remedies. Nearly all these practices were influenced in one way or another by alchemic beliefs. Hell, even Nixium, primarily known as a subsect sex cult that Brandon's member, they employed many ideas that harken back to alchemical beliefs, one in particular being around the concept of integ integration. Nixian practitioners believed that all people were disintegrated, that their essence and being was fractured. And through Nixian classes and education, you could integrate those slivers back together. And if you managed to complete integration, you would, you'd reach enlightenment. Of course, the only person who ever did this was Keith Raniere himself. <laughs> but that's very much an alchemic, alchemic belief. <laughs> I hate it. I hate all of it. Oh, it gets better. And if any of the alchemic symbolism seems oddly familiar, you can blame that on Carl Gustav Jung, who rescued these concepts and integrated them into his unique brand of psychology. Jung's that teachings are the basis of many occult and French group. Oh. What? Hi. Yep, Carl Jung. Yeah, it's all Jungian, yeah. 
As for the wondrous idea of transmuting baser metals into gold, well, we know that now that that's impossible to do by chemical means, but it's actually possible by physical means through the process known as nuclear transmutation. Hell yeah. We've been able to synthesize gold in particle accelerator accelerators since 1941, but it's not in the least bit financial worthwhile. In short, alchemy has a fascinating history and is the foundation of many of the sciences we rely on today. Sadly, many, and sadly, many grifts that we see today. Like alchemy itself, which is both mysticism and science, the impact on the world has been both negative and positive. That's alchemy. Boom. Goodness. Holy shit. Yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> oh my goodness. It's it's so it's so wild when you start looking at that stuff and you go all the way back to kind of where, you know, historians think it might have originated or origins of it, like you'd done, you know, India and and in Europe and everything. That's like, wow, this this shit just gets into the veins of culture in general and sticks. And I wasn't expecting it to be such a big thing. I was thinking, like, oh, it happened for a couple centuries, you know, when Europe was into that kind of shit. But no, it's everywhere. <laughs> forever. Yeah. It's for everywhere. It's for everywhere. <laughs> Alchemy is everything and nothing. Yep. Well, I guess we better let Hallie go to bed. Bye, <laughs> <laughs> Hallie. Good I night. will head off, but thanks all. Mm -hmm. Bye. 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 That's it for this week. Next week will be something else, which we're recording this weekend, so I don't know yet what those topics are. As always, links, pictures, and additional information can be found on our website at thehumanexception.com. To keep up with all things exceptional, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at The Human Exception. Have a story that you want us to cover? Want to tell us that we're wrong or you just want to say hi? You can email us at thehumanexception at gmail.com. And if you want to get on the fun, you can come join us on our Discord server. Link can be found on our contact page. Keep on being exceptional, my humans, and have a wonderful weekend.